You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Dana Joya, who is former chairman of the National Endowment of the Arts, former poet laureate of the state of California, and also the author of numerous books, lots of works of poetry. I only have one of your poetical books here with me, the most recent one, which is Meet Me at the Lighthouse, but also author of many opera librettos, translations, and a number of works of prose, including this one, Can Poetry Matter? Another one called Disappearing Ink, Poetry at the End of Print Culture. This one called The Catholic Writer Today and other essays and a memoir studying with Miss Bishop. Welcome, Dana. Good to be here. So, well, first of all, we're probably going to spend most of the time talking about your prose works. And I think that sort of says something about the state of poetry in modern America. When, as a social scientist, whenever somebody makes a claim like poetry's on the decline, I'm always a little suspicious. I want to see the data. And there are two works of yours, which kind of made sort of slightly different messages about the state of poetry in America. The first one, which came out about 30 years ago, was Can Poetry Matter? And I think it was, at least the lead essay, was in part bemoaning the decline of poetry and verse in modern culture, particularly modern American culture. But then I think about 10 years later, you came out with this book, Disappearing Ink, which I think the lead essay there said, hey, there's actually a resurgence of what we might think of as poetry. And I guess it kind of depends on how you define poetry, right? Like, is poetry the stuff that the academics recognize as poetry, or is poetry include art forms such as rap, which I, you know, I'm a huge rap fan and have been since the very beginning. And I've always considered it to be something akin to poetry. Well, let me answer your question in parts. Let me start at the end. What is poetry? Poetry is probably the most ancient art that we still practice. It goes back to a time in history before writing. And anything that was important was chanted or sung. Poetry and art were the same art in the ancient world. And you know that because they use the same words to describe it. Like in Latin, there's a word called carmen. Carmen means poem, song, magic spell, and prophecy. It was all the same thing. Now, poetry is a special way of speaking that invites and rewards a special way of listening. It, poetry is language that's raised to the level of song that creates a spell on people so that they listen to it with a different attention than they would bring to normal conversation or prose. So poetry is not a style. It's not the property of any class. It's a human art of crafting words for heightened attention. Now, 30-some years ago, I wrote what actually remains the most famous essay in contemporary poetry called Can Poetry Matter? And I pointed out a cultural paradox. I said that there had never been a society which paid so many people to profess poetry, <laughs> and yet there had never been a society in which poetry mattered less to the public culture and to the general audience. And I raised the outrageous notion that maybe those two things were connected. Maybe the way that poetry had been institutionalized was the reason why poetry's audience was so bizarre and why poetry was so marginal. This article created more mail than any article in the history of the Atlantic Monthly, and that's a long history. The letters, however, were interesting. This is back when people actually had to put a stamp on it. I think I got one thing that was called an email. Nobody really knew what it was. But I read hundreds and hundreds of letters. Every letter that was written, well, first of all, the letters fell into the normal ways of positive, negative, and incomprehensible. All of the letters that came in were positive, except for about 5% of the letters. Every negative letter was from somebody in an English department or a creative writing department. And that said everything to me, that everybody in society agreed with my article, except the people who had a professional vested interest. And I predicted at the end of the article that if poetry were used differently, that there would be a revival because people were hungry for it. That 
indeed was what happened. I mean, I could not have predicted it, but between the first delivery of that article as a lecture at the New York Public Library, and 10 years later, you had the creation of rap, you had slam poetry, you had the revival of cowboy poetry, and in the case of literary poetry, a movement that I was involved with, which has the was given the name New Formalism. I don't like that name, but it's called New Formalism, in which we revived rhyme, meter, and storytelling. That was entirely attacked and continues to be attacked almost to this day by the academics. But what has happened in the last 15 years is that poetry has become the fastest growing art in the United States. And this is government data from the mm. NEA Art Survey, which is the largest art survey in the world, which has about almost 40 years of historical data to compare it to. Poetry is growing among every age group, every educational group, every race, both genders. And so there's something going on. But where that revival is happening, as I talk about in Disappearing Inc., is outside the English department. The English department is imploding. Enrollments are falling off. Jobs are falling off. Because they have made literature the most boring subject at the university. And that is an achievement. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you talked about your time at Harvard where you were studying to be a professional, well, academic in the world of literature and you left. And I think one of the things you said, I remember at one of your readings recently, is that poetry is more demanding than prose and that poetry, there's basically four, I think you said there were four things that poetry engaged, right? There was the mind, there was the body, there was the memory, and there was emotion and that your study of literature was really kind of reduced to the intellectual aspects of it. And since the rest had been kind of squeezed out in the academy, you wanted to kind of get out of the academy. When I was at Harvard, I loved Harvard. I loved the most intellectual classes I loved because I've got an analytical mind. That's why I was very good in business. But I recognized, because I had such an analytical mind, the worst thing you could do for me as a poet was to make me more analytical, more intellectual. And I had some great teachers at Harvard, but I realized after a couple of years, the best teachers I had all had odd careers. Two of them had fought in World War II, and they'd been in combat, and they came back and they kind of knew, one of them was Robert Fitzgerald. He knew, yeah. after spending a couple of years in the Pacific campaign, why poetry mattered to him, why poetry was of life and death importance. Elizabeth Bishop had avoided teaching most of her life. She was a writer. Northrop Frye had been a minister. And so they were people with unusual perspectives. And I realized that Harvard was the deadliest place for me to be in if I wanted to be a poet, because it was educating me sort of from the eyebrows up. It was just my brain that was, and I needed to understand how to put my emotions, my intuition, my physical body into poetry. And so I left Harvard. And I ended up at Stanford Business School because I'd had crap jobs my whole life. And I figured if I was going to work, I'd have a real career. And Wallace Stevens, T.S. Eliot, and innumerable other poets, Archibald McLeish, had had very heavy-duty business or legal careers, and they'd managed to write. And so I thought it was a pretty good idea. Now, I also have to say that when I was an undergraduate at Stanford, whenever I walked by Stanford Business School, I always saw a bunch of guys sitting on the steps drinking beer. And I said to myself, I can do that. Because I knew it was, a it was a different kind of graduate school than law school or whatever. It was a, a school that in some ways was about teaching you analytical tools, but also socializing you for the world of business, which for me as a working class kid was the most important thing. I mean, I had the intellect, but I didn't have the, the social knowledge to move in that world for a number of years. So I then went and decided that I would have a full-time job, a serious career, and I would write on weekends and nights. And I, actually, I went to Stanford Business School to be a poet. Well, I think you, you may have been the only one that ever went to Stanford Business School to become a poet. But when you, you were describing the teachers that had a huge influence on you, and you talked about Elizabeth Bishop, you didn't have a chapter on Northrop Frye, but you had this wonderful chapter on Robert Fitzgerald. And when I read that chapter, I thought, oh, wow, I really wish I could have had an experience like that. He seemed like a tremendous teacher. And, you know, it must have been very difficult to pry yourself away from that type of experience and go to Stanford Business School because you didn't mention yeah. any business school professors as having had a huge impact on you. And uh, 
I worried, like, as a business school professor, I like, I, I want somebody to write a book. Like, I want somebody to talk about me the way you talked about Robert Fitzgerald. Well, if I had written about my career, my professional career in business, and my profe- the professional side of my career in the government when I ran the National Endowment for the Arts, I could have talked about a couple of business school teachers as both good and bad influences. I don't want to name any of them because they may not be around, but a wonderful teacher I had was Ezra Solomon, who taught a finance class. He was Jewish from Burma, if you can imagine such a thing. And he had seen every financial collapse that you could possibly imagine. And he taught this class essentially on on interest rates and bonds, which I was not at all interested going into. Coming out of that, it's given me a great perspective in the market the rest of my life. Uh, Professor Porterfield, who passed away a number of years ago, was a finance teacher. They were good teachers. I had one or two teachers that who were I thought terrible, but one of them was basically in the soft side of it, the human relations side of it. And he was always talking about being a people person. He was the only professor I ever had who didn't learn his students' names. So it was, there was a kind of a dissonance between that. But business school was very good for me because it's a funny place. You come into business school, and I don't know if it's still the case, you are surrounded by the most practical students you've ever met. They're not the smartest students you've ever met, but these are people who learn, have, are practical, they're focused, and they have much better human skills than you find in, in the academic things. I mean, if you go into a graduate academic program, you largely have people who don't know how to play with the other boys and girls, except in music, where literally you have to play with other boys and girls to make a profession. But I, I found business school very, very rewarding, most of all because I met my wife. I met a girl there, I fell in love with her. She was practically the best student in the business school, and I was the worst. But I was the worst because I was writing for three hours every day before I did my business school mm-hmm. work. And uh, in Oxford, they say the best third, which is the lowest you can get, the best third is the one closest to failing. And I got the best MBA in my class, I think, because I was probably the student closest to failing, who nonetheless passed. But I used those two years also to turn myself into a professional writer. I worked on my writing every day. I began publishing essays, publishing poems, publishing translations. And so it was very valuable time for me because it was the first time I wasn't doing academic literary work. It was all private in my imagination. And I had to make that transition from an institutional framework into a private framework. You know, it's very difficult in today's world for a poet to make a living purely through poetry, right? So most poets have some other means of support if they're not independently wealthy. I mean, like Merrill and and Lowell, you know, they might have had be independent wealthy, but today, you know, it's hard. So most poets have academic appointments, which requires teaching and lots of administrative work and so forth. But your early poetry career was working for General Foods, right? Yeah, I was, I was in the mainstream management for General Foods. But let me, let me make a point, which is that the danger of being a professor is not the workload. I mean, I had a workload at General Foods and at the government. I don't mean to be disrespectful to English professors, but it was two or three times what the workload would have been for anybody in an academic thing. I was working 10 hours a day. I was traveling every week. That's not the hard part of academia. I mean, they go, oh, I have to teach two classes or three classes. I mean, that's not easy, but it's not crushing. The hard part of academia is the sociological little niche you go into, which affects the way you think, the way you talk. And this was even true before political correctness and woke. I mean, now there's a whole ideological cone that descends on you that makes it more difficult for you to talk to the rest of humanity. The better you get at talking to your colleagues, the worse you get to talking to the rest of society. That's a major cultural problem in the United States. Our academics have, in most cases, forgotten how to lead a larger public conversation. And so I wanted, that's what I wanted to avoid. And you know, I had no idea what the political problems, the sociological problems would become much, much worse. So I was going to ask you about these advantages of working in business. And I think you talked about Wallace Stevens and T.S. Eliot, and you said that they weren't under as much pressure to publish and that perhaps their ability to be creative may have been enhanced by the, the demands of their work. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, here's the problem. If, you're, if 
Wallace Stevens had been a professor in the contemporary university, he would have been fired. He published his first book of poems at the <laughs> age of 43. I mean, they would say, Wally, you're not a very nice guy, and you're just a terrible writer. Just get out of here. And he had the, the chance, the solitude, the isolation, the ability to meditate away from the literary marketplace that allowed him to take a kind of soft, you know, he wrote, he was writing like John Keats when he was in college to become one of the major modernist poets. That's what I needed. I needed space. Didn't need somebody to make me smarter. I needed to become dumber to become a poet. And I mean that in a positive sense. I needed to get my intellect talking to my emotions. I needed to, to train my physical body. Luckily, I was trained in music to hear things, to hear how words work. Now, I'll tell you the biggest advantage I had in business. I mean, first of all, I had a paycheck. So I didn't have to worry about publishing things or whatever to secure my job. I just had to make $150 million of profit every year. Small thing. But I was surrounded by very intelligent, non-literary people. I heard how they spoke. I heard the stories that interested them. I saw how when somebody retired or was leaving the company, they would write a poem. They would write a poem, usually a, a sarcastic, funny poem for a guy, or rather a nicer poem for a woman. I noticed the meter that they would use. I noticed the rhymes that they would do. I noticed the stories they told. And that grounded me in kind of intelligent, everyday America. And that was the best training I could have had as a poet. Because rather than being grounded in what PhD candidates at an Ivy League research university were like. And so I was able to rebuild my poetry, in a sense, from the ground up. And I spent about seven years not publishing any poems. And then when I started publishing again, I immediately ended up in the best magazines in the country, Hudson Review, The New Yorker, Poetry. And they were asking me for my work. And so it was very much what Wallace Stevens did, which is not to compare myself to Stevens. And so I was very happy working full-time and writing full-time writing in all my spare hours. And I probably would have stayed that way had not certain things happened in my life. Well, I think you, you told the story about when your boss found out that you were a poet, right? And uh, was a bit taken aback. Yeah. I'm a sweetheart, I assure you. But I'm a tough-skinned guy. You know, I come from a rough neighborhood. <laughs> my parents were the kind of parents that are, were always criticizing you. So I had the ability to work for bosses that other people couldn't. And I had this one boss who was, I'll use his name, his name is Greg Murphy. He'd be happy to hear this story. He was brilliant in business, but you know he had been All-American sports at Annapolis in two different sports. He'd you know, come into sort of commanding combat, longshoremen, unloading stuff under fire. He was totally tough. And he was back in about 1940 for his leadership skills. who had been great in World War II, not so good at in a New York corporation. So some people found him difficult to work with. And he treated his part of the company like it was a military unit. And he called everybody by their initials. I was DG. And so I didn't tell anyone at General Foods that I wrote poetry because I figured it wouldn't help me any. I mean, if you had a poet working for you at General Foods, you'd check their arithmetic. You know, you really wouldn't trust them making decisions. And I was very hardcore, very successful guy there. But Esquire did an issue called Men and Women Under 40 Who Are Changing America. And they put me in it. And when they called me up to interview me, I said, I don't want to be in this. And they said, well, why not? I said, I don't want anybody in the company to know I do this. And they said, well, we're going to publish it about you whether you want it or not. You know, they had like 100 some people that was in it. It's the first time I ever saw Bill Clinton's name. And so they brought it out and people at the company worked it. They didn't see me when I published poems in the New Yorker because they didn't look at the poems in the New Yorker. They only looked at the cartoons. And so uh, when this came out, so somebody came in and said, Greg wants to talk to you. And I knew what it was about because everybody was, and so I come in his office, he's chomping this cigar. He had this, always had this greasy cigar butt. He goes, DG. And I go, yeah, Greg, somebody told me you wrote poetry. And I said, yeah, Greg, I do. And he looks at me and he goes, shit. And that, I think, summed up the corporate view of the poet in the 70s and 80s. I finally quit in 1991 after 15 years in the job. And I, I quit because I intended to make my living as a writer. And I was able to. I was lucky. 
Well, you know, they say every writer has an audience. You mentioned being able to communicate with more ordinary people and your family background. I think at one point you said that you wanted to write the kind of poems that your grandfather could understand or that your uncle, well, your uncle was a special case, I think, because he was very, very highly yeah. educated, right? But, you know, that your grandparents could understand. And that seems like, that seems very different from, I guess, a typical mainstream poet. Well, you know, if you're in the academy, you know, you have to write poems that your professional peers respect because that's who controls the rewards. They control your job, your tenure, your promotion. They're the ones that are giving you prizes. I think that is a trap. Now, I want to be really clear about this. The English department is some smart people, but they aren't the smartest people on the planet. They really aren't. They think they are, but they aren't. If I went into General Foods, I had a, as least as high a level of intellect, you know, I would have had in most English departments, maybe not Harvard. But intelligence is in every profession. It's in every class. It's in every race. And poets are deluding themselves to think that if they try to engage a broader public, that they're somehow lowering their standards. It's more difficult to write a poem which engages different people in different professions with different life experience. So I try to write a poem which is, I can hold up against the best things in the literary tradition. I mean, I want, I bring my poems to the ghost of Dante, the ghost of Frost, the ghost of Auden, and I ask, you know, Wisden, how are these poems? But which does not, how would I say, which does not refuse entry to other people. Now, you can't write for everybody because some people just don't care, they don't think. But, you know, let's say that I'm writing for the top 10% of the United States. Let's say the top 20% of the United States. That's almost 65 million people. I mean, that's a huge, huge audience. And if you look at this, the top 20-30% of Americans read poems. Now, are they reading the poems that Harvard wants them to read? No, they aren't. But they're reading poems that speak to them as human beings. And, you know, when people find out I'm a poet, they almost always talk about poems that matter to them. And most people have four or five poems in their heart. Some of them memorize it. Or they or someone they love writes poetry. I was at the recycling center about a year ago. I was cleaning out my studio because I'd, I've done 22, 23 anthologies of these thick books that are, I was the best-selling college literature textbook writer for about 20 years. And so I had thousands of pages of manuscripts, of proofs, of permission forms, of all this stuff. And I was just getting that. I had two full carloads there. And the second time I was just dumping this stuff in, and this man that lives in the shack in the dump, I'm not sure what his official position is, but he looks like the kind of guy that lives in the dump. He comes over and he goes, are you a lawyer? And I said, no. I said, why do you ask? He said, well, you're throwing all this paper out. I said, no, no, I'm a writer. And he goes, look, what do you write? And I said, well, you know, I'm a poet. He goes, really? He says, I want to show you a poem. So he goes back into his shack hmm. and he comes out with these two old pieces of paper. And he says, my brother in Vietnam wrote these poems. You know, and he came back, and he was very unhappy. He could never adjust, and he, he's dead now. But I read these poems all the time. Can I read them to you? So he, he unfolds it, and they were not bad poems. And those poems were a living link between him and his dead brother, his brother's experience in war, his brother's experience afterwards. That's what poetry does. Poetry allows us to talk to the dead, to remember people, to renew experiences we have. That's the magic spell of poetry. So this guy, if I'd brought a Harvard professor and I said, what odds would you have that this guy had poems he loved and he knew the poet? They said, one in a million. But I would bet most people have a poem in their wallet or a poem in their Bible, or they know a poem by heart. My mother was a Mexican-American woman of no great education, and she knew many poems by heart, and she recited them. My grandfather was a cowboy. A vaquero, a Mexican cowboy. And they would s sit around the fires during the cattle drives. They'd sing songs and they'd recite poems. And so he learned poems by his ear. And he still knew them at 70. 
after a great deal of drinking. <laughs> so anyway, I feel that as a poet, I have a cultural calling, and it's not just to talk to members of an English department. Well, you know, I remember that when I first saw that scene in Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme, right, where he talks about poetry and prose, and it's hard to remember that those were sort of equally represented in people's literary landscape. And now poetry has sort of shrunk to become a relatively small part of the literary landscape. And it reminded me, I was having another podcast where I was reminded that at one point, philosophy and theology were kind of equally represented in the academic landscape. And of course, theology is just this little little rump. And you know, I'm wondering if there's a connection, given that you've spoken a lot about kind of the state of religion. I'd say theology outside of the university has a hundred more times readers than philosophy does. I'm a practicing Catholic, and I know people that are always reading a theological book. They're never reading a, a book of contemporary philosophy because it's not written for them. It's written for other academics. And so there's an interesting phenomenon. The university believes it's the universe. They believe that whatever they study in the university is what exists in a form of discourse. But the fact is, if you take theology out of a university, you take poetry out of a university, the people recreate it for themselves. What is rap? Rap is a poetic art form created by people who were completely excluded from intellectual life. They were excluded from education. They were excluded from culture. And yet, Cool Herc, the person who we look on as the, the primogenitor of rap, Cool Herc understood that people want memorable language. They want memorable and moving words that describe the world that they live in, the experience that they live in. I know this from a couple of things. I have a video right now that's getting a thousand new views a day. And it's because it's a poem about the beauty of Los Angeles. And nobody talks about the beauty of Los Angeles. And people see it and they pass it on to their friends because they need those words. And I get these long, long letters from people I don't know about recounting their childhoods in Los Angeles or emails. I have another poem. My wife and I lost our first son. He died of sudden infant death syndrome at four months. And I wrote a couple of poems about this. I constantly get letters emails, and sometimes physical letters from strangers who have lost a child. And they thank me for having written a poem which helps them understand their own experience. There's another poem I wrote called Marriage of Many Years, and it's about what a long marriage is like. And it's a poem really in praise of the intimacy that you have with your spouse. And the same thing is now used at weddings. Now, I I don't know why, how it ended up from my book into the wedding planning guides, but it did. And I'll tell you the reason, which is that people want memorable, moving words read at their wedding ceremonies, the same way that they want them at the funerals of those they love. Now, nobody at Harvard is writing a wedding poem, a funeral poem. They're writing poems that exist in a very interesting, but very elite and small literary world. And what I want to write about is love, death, birth, transfiguration, time, mortality. Those seem to me the interesting themes. And they're a little too naive for a professional. Why would anybody? <laughs> and so I don't know. Human experience to me, life as a mystery is endlessly interesting to me. My trees are interesting to me. Animals are interesting to me because they're all part of a world that's unfolding about me. And even if I live in it day after day, I'm always discovering something new. And, and why do you suppose that is? I mean, when you, you talked about Robert Fitzgerald, you said that he was the first person that made you really appreciate the extent to which poetry was about life, right? And it was about how to live. And, I th and you, you've talked about how you've quoted other authors by saying that without aesthetics, without beauty, I mean, civilization is destined to disintegrate, right? Why are contemporary intellectuals afraid of aesthetics or afraid of spirituality even? Yeah, they've backed themselves into a corner. I mean, they, and people have done the, the intellectual genealogy of it. But let's say that we begin with Nietzsche. Nietzsche is basically taking truths and turning them upside down. And anything that seemed good is now evil, anything. And he basically says that values are just 
illusions. They're things, this becomes deconstructionism that if I say something is true, I'm just saying that to assert my power over you because if that's true, I'm stronger than you. And I understand that this is a a very useful half-truth. I mean, there are moments in civilization or whatever where people twist things, but the fact is the law of gravity is not a social construction. Death is not a social construction. These things, maybe some of our attitudes are about it, and the thing that suffered the most is the notion of beauty. Beauty is still considered, I think, by most academics, a social construction that's used by one group to oppress another group. It's just not true. I mean, if I stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and I look at the Grand Canyon and it's awe and wonder and magnificence and I feel it as beautiful, that is not a notion of beauty that makes me, that enlarges me. It makes me feel insignificant. It makes me feel small. Beauty is not a thing. It's not a social construction. It's an experience that we feel repeatedly when we are in the presence of something which fascinates us in such a way. I'm looking at you on the screen, but behind you are beautiful oak trees. There was only half as many as I had before because the fire destroyed a lot of them, but they're 200-year-old oak trees. And I look at them and they're beautiful. And as I look at them and I appreciate their beauty, I begin to see how they are structured. I can see how the wind, how fire, how earth, how the slant of the soil on the hillsides has shaped their form. And it becomes more and more and more fascinating until I have, they've arrested my attention. They give me pleasure at looking at them. And suddenly I see through them some of the mysteries of existence. I experience truths that are embodied in those things about them that I find beautiful. I don't own beauty. I don't have a thing that's beauty. Beauty is an experience. It is maybe our highest level of full human cognition, where physically, mentally, emotionally, imaginatively, we're able to apprehend some of the mysteries of existence. And when you say, well, beauty is not truth, beauty is social construction, you're missing the whole point. And then you start to create art out of that, and you have hollow art, because you have this art that's just made up of your little white cells and not your sensory experience, not your physical experience, not your emotional experience in league with your, with your intellect. So I'm not saying that beauty is dumb or anything like this, but it is harder to create art which engages the full human intelligence than it is to create art that's merely intellectual. And in the same way, it's harder to come to terms with the actual beauty, the experience of beauty that we find continuously through life that doesn't try to reduce it to a little thing. And that's why art is experiential. That's why sometimes you'll have great artists who can't even explain what they're doing in words because they've got all of the intuitive genius I don't think anybody would have wanted to engage Picasso in a lot of things. He was a kind of cagey, cruel, exploitative peasant of, of incredible genius. He was busier putting his, you know, his hands on the women around him or getting money. And that's not to demean Picasso's genius. It's just that he, as a human being, was greatly flawed. He was not a great intellect, but he had the instincts of a genius of the highest order and the ability to create art of of the highest order. Well, that's why I'm not asking you to explain or interpret any of your own poems, even though I'm asking you to talk about poetry in general. Let's read at least one poem. What would you like? Do you want me to just pick something? I really, I mean, there's some that I really enjoy. I like the the litany of lost things. I really like that one. I like Homecoming. Speaking of love, there's a bunch that I really like. Well, I write, I mean, it's interesting because the homecoming is, a, is like a little novella in verse, you know, about a murderer, but it's too long for the show. What We could do Epitaph. That's a short one. Okay, well, that, that's the shortest one in the whole book. A friend of mine had a press that was going out of business, and he and I have been involved in this press for 30 years. So I said, let's write epitaphs for the people that are involved. So I wrote mine, which is, here lies Dean G, a poet who can say, he didn't even have an MFA. So that's about as short as you can get. And that's, that poem is just there for just a little moment of humor after some of the darker poems in my book. But it's also a poem about my own mortality mm-hmm. and the fact that who knows what people will think of me after death. 
But right now, they can't even make sense of me because I'm a, a poet without, who didn't go to poet school. Well, we can have you do a longer one. Let me do some of the heights, the one about Los Angeles. Okay, this is a poem about Los Angeles, and it's very simple. Once again, I like, to have a, I like the poem to talk to your physical body. So take your physical body in your imagination and stand in the Hollywood Hills, maybe right underneath the Hollywood sign, and just look out at Los Angeles at night. The poem never moves from that position, and I simply talk about what you think, what you see, and what you feel. Psalm of the Heights. You don't fall in love with Los Angeles until you've seen it from a distance after dark. Up in the heights of the Hollywood Hills, you can mute the sounds and find perspective. The pulsing anger of the traffic dissipates and our swank, unmanageable metropolis dissolves with all its signage and its sewage until only the radiance remains. That's when the city of angels appears, silent and weightless as the dancer's dream. The boulevards unfold in brilliant lines. The freeways flow like shining rivers. The moving lights stretch into vast and secret shapes, invisible at street level. At the horizon, the city rises into sky, our demi-galaxy brighter than the zodiac. Surely our destinies are written in this zodiac, whose courses and conjunctions govern us. Look down and name our starry constellations, Wilshire, Olympic, Santa Monica. In speeding comets or sleek thunderbirds, we travel the twelve houses of the heavens, ascending Crenshaw, sunset, or imperial, locked in our private worlds of lust or laughter. Who will cast the charts of our radiant sorrow or trace the secret transits of our joy? The traffic shimmers in its fixed trajectories, dense and indifferent as nebulae. Though you resist the gaudy spectacle, you can't escape the city's sortilege. Move away, if you wish, to the white Sierras or huddle in the smoky canyons of Manhattan. You'll miss the juvenescent rapture of L.A., where ecstasy cohabits with despair, lascivious and fitful as a pair of lovers. Let someone else play grown-up. Here the soul sings like a car radio, and no one asks your age, because we're all immortal. Inhale the spices of the midnight air, drifting from Thai town and little Armenia. Here on the hilltop, the city whispers to you, come down and play in the traffic. Merge into the moving lights, our myriad, the luminous multitudes that surround you. Join their fiery orbit. Shine with us tonight. Where else can you become a star? So that's a poem that's playful. It's serious. It's emotional. You can say it's delusional, but if it's delusional, it's the joyful delusions of one of the great cities. And I think people respond to it at once because falling in love with Los Angeles is like falling in love with the most dangerous woman imaginable. And it's intoxicating and, and you have to be wary. But people respond to that. And it's building an audience because I'm talking about something nobody else talks about. Now you can say, I'm using one or two words there that nobody knows what they mean. When I say, you can't escape the city's sortilege, which is a fancy word for sorcery. But people understand it immediately. They know what the word, the word means some kind of magical thing. And I like that. I like to have in one or two moments where I'm just outside of the vocabulary of the experience of people because they want poetry to be expansive. They want to have a, little mysteries in the poem. So I do not think 
in any sense, I'm condescending to any of my listeners or readers with that poem. I'm inviting them into something, and I'm leaving room where they can bring their whole lives. Because that's what that was the most important learning experience for me for a poet, is that as a poet, you're trying to create something which has enough room for your reader. And that is the big mistake academics make. If they were writing this poem, they would give you the poem and they would tell you how to interpret it, and they would then they would ironize it and go that there's no room for anybody else to bring their interpretation into it. And I know that this is working, but I'm getting these letters from strangers giving me their, me their whole early life in Los Angeles because it's awakened those memories, and that's why the poem is exciting to them. It's allowed them to see the world in which they live in every day, which doesn't seem poetic, and connect it to their imagination, connect it to their dreams. Where else can you become a star? I mean, the way you read the poetry is very different from the way a lot of lyric poets read their poems, right? So I remember going to a reading once of Louise Gluck, I think it was. And well, first of all, it's not a narrative poem, but it's it's very flat. And so, so first of all, I mean, I think that most people would immediately intuit how they're supposed to read this. But I have to admit that once I heard you read your poetry, I can't read your poetry without hearing your voice. And I always wondered, why isn't there a Spotify channel for, I mean, I love getting these recordings of, po like, I think I, I, there was a lot of the older, old, dusty recordings of poems reading their works from decades ago. And once you hear them read their poetry, it brings it to life in ways that maybe for an amateur poetry listener, it's harder. Well, so there's two things I would say in response to your absolutely astute comment about contemporary poetry is that I think in many cases, modern or contemporary poets don't write their poems to be heard. They write them to be read silently on the page. And that's fine. That's fine. But in some ways, you're betraying what the art is. Once again, poetry goes back to before the invention of writing. Poetry is a way of using speech, not using written symbols. So poetry is speech raised to the level of song. And so like when you hear Yeats read, he sings his poems. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree. He's holding the long vowels. He's singing his poems. And I think that's probably the way most poets read their poems until the 20th century. There's an old recording of Tennyson from Meeting Vermont, and he does the same thing. He's singing the poems. I'm coming, my old, my sweet, I'm coming, my... You know, he's chanting them. That's how Russian poets still read. And so I write my poems so that they can be read on the page, but also so that they cry out to be spoken aloud, to be read aloud. And I, I think one of the reasons that poetry is growing in the United States is that most people's experience of poems is through performance. And that's what people like. And I, this is absolutely true. You can give me an audience of anyone, and if I recite from memory one poem to them that means something to me, they will overwhelmingly love it. Now, if I say, I want to read 45 minutes of my poetry, they don't love it. But people love to hear great language well recited. And that's what we've lost. And so anyway, I write my poems to be read aloud. In fact, increasingly, I compose them in my head while walking. And because that way, I feel the rhythms. So even if I'm writing something in like this poem I just read that's quasi-metrical, I can feel the beats. I can feel the syllables. The same way that Yeats, obviously, I will arise and go now and go to Innes Free. Because it's actually recorded. I'm, just, I'm not actually exaggerating his voice more than just a little. He loves the long vowels. And he loves, like opera singers do, he wants to have that open vowel that he can hold because he knows there's an emotive effect. I will arise and get to Innes Free is different, and I will arise and go to Innisfree. And he knows that. He's, he's a musical genius. Speech after long silence, it is right. All other lovers being estranged or dead. I mean, Yeats's poems have just a, it's 
Once again, speech, language raised to the level of song. Let me do a poem of mine that was actually written as a song, but it's, it's one of my most popular poems on the page. It's very short. It's about beautiful people and how their beauty... I guess I wrote this before a term entered English, but this is a prophetic poem predicting the word pretty privilege, the privilege that pretty people have. And it's called Pity the Beautiful. Pity the beautiful, the dolls and the dishes, the babes with big daddies granting their wishes. Pity the pretty boys, the hunks and Apollos, the golden lads whom success always follows, the hotties, the knockouts, the tens out of ten, the drop dead gorgeous, the great leading men. Pity the faded, the bloated, the blousy, the paunchy Adonis whose luck's gone lousy. Pity the gods, no longer divine. Pity the night, the stars lose their shine. Now, I wrote that because Helen Sung, a jazz pianist, wanted lyrics for you know an album we were doing together. But I wanted to write it the way Ben Johnson or William Shakespeare or John Donne would have written a song. They call certain poems songs that were meant to be set to music, but were also meant to be read as very lyric poems. And I didn't think it, but this is a poem that's very popular among high school kids. And as soon as I realized, well, I could see why, because, you know, business school, there was always one or two guys that were just good looking. They just they were the kind of people you would cast as the brilliant young executive. And they always got twice as many job offers as everyone else, as did the most beautiful women. And you see this, but, you know, when the looks begin to fade, then a lot of these people have very hard times because they've been skating by on the fact that people just love to look at them. But anyway, it's a human truth. Is anybody at Yale writing a poem about babes and, and dishes of pretty boys and golden lads? I don't think so. But yet... It's an experience people have, an experience people have early in their life, and it sometimes becomes an experience which traumatizes them throughout the rest of their lives. So anyway, I don't mean to blow my own trumpet, although I guess that's what exactly what I've been doing for you know, the last few minutes. <laughs> but I like having fun with poems. I think that poem is both fun and sad. You said that Shakespeare never made his listeners feel stupid, and I don't think Verdi ever made his listeners feel stupid. But you know, you said this makes you sad as well. Part of your work, it seems you said at one point that poetry helps you to endure suffering, right? That suffering is, is redemptive. There's a religious aspect to your work. And I wanted to ask you about that. You said that the separation of religion and art harms both. I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Well, let's talk about suffering first. Suffering is unavoidable. And nobody has such a blessed life that they don't have bad things happen to them, great losses. And actually, most people have terrible things that happen in the course of otherwise good lives. My best friend's beautiful wife developed dementia in her 50s. And what should have been some of the happiest times of the marriage was him accompanying her to her inevitable and early death. And so I lost a son. I, I meet people all the time who have lost children, have lost, et cetera, et cetera. So you, how do you deal with this? It's crippling. People, many people simply take drugs to blunt their responses. I see some men who sort of try to shut off part of their emotional life because it's the only way they could deal with the pain. So if you go to Buddha or you go to Jesus, at the center of both of their messages is how do you deal with suffering? Buddha says to live is to suffer. And so your primary response of that is, how do you deal with suffering? And that's essentially the, the entry into Buddhism. I'm a Catholic, and I try to live as much as possible by the words of the gospel. And I don't think of it as a restrictive thing. I think of it as a kind of an expansive, challenging thing. And so what the message is there, there is, to, is to, rather than try to avoid or deny your suffering, to embrace it. And Seneca does the same thing as a Stoic, the Stoic philosophers. You take that suffering and you see where it leads you. Losing my son, which was the most unbearable and permanent wound of my life, even worse than losing my parents, losing people that were very close to me because he was my only son at that time, led me to become a much more compassionate person. It led me to understand 
other people's suffering. Well, you've had a lot of suffering in yourself, you recognize it immediately. When I give poetry readings, almost always there's somebody in the audience who begins looking at me differently, and then they come afterwards and they stand off to one side, and they want to be the last person who talks to me. And I now greet them, and I say, you've lost someone too. And they go, yes, how did you know? And it's because my suffering has made me attuned to this. Gay people say, have a thing they call gaydar. I have suffering dar. <laughs> you know, it's, I guess, probably a lot less fun. But it is, an, and I feel a, an affinity with them. And what I do, even yesterday, I got an email from someone who had lost a daughter. And she talked about how important this poem I, I wrote called Majority is, which was a poem I wrote on what would have been the 21st birthday of my son. And she said she couldn't understand why the birthdays were unbearable for her. And she says, this gave me a way of understanding that. And I could not have, that's better to me than a rave review from somebody at Princeton. Because I felt that my poems had a human use and value. So for me, I write the poems the muse gives me. I can't really pick the poems I write. But a lot of times the muse gives me poems about something that's dark, and I have to make sense of it. There's a wonderful thing that Seneca said, and an Italian painter I know quoted it to me after my son's death. He goes, if you follow your destiny, it guides you. If you resist it, it drags you behind it. And I think that's quite true. And I think most people are being dragged. You know, they're happy to, to follow their good destiny, but their painful destinies they try to avoid, and it drags them along behind it. And they can never escape it and they can only suffer from it. So anyway, so you look at this and you say, what is poetry's relationship to religion? It isn't religion. They're two quite different things. And yet, if you're a Jew or a Christian, you understand that one-third of Scripture is written as poetry. Now, why would they do that? Is Are the prophets bad writers? That they don't understand that what we need are things in straightforward prose? No. It's part of the genius of the Judeo-Christian tradition that for those things which are mysteries, that are prophecies, that are visions, the natural human language is poetry. So now you realize that poetry and religion are not the same thing, but they overlap. That poetry gives the language by which we can understand religious vision. It's true in Hindu religion. It's true overwhelmingly in, in Islam. It's true in Buddhism that you cannot conceive those religions without understanding the poetic nature of their expression. Now, what does religion bring to poetry? Well, if you're writing poetry without a profound spiritual or religious vision, I think you're writing shallow poetry. That you, What you're trying to do in poetry, you're making constructions of words, and you can write amusing poems that are not very deep, I mean, a lot of poets just write about funny things that happen to them in their lives, and those things are amusing. But if you're trying to write poetry at the outermost extent of its possibilities, you are, by nature, wrestling with the mysteries of human existence, and it clarifies and deepens your expression to, in a sense, have one of the great spiritual traditions behind you, or underneath you, or in front of you. I, I go outside— and I live on 20 acres of wooded hillsides. Used to be country, but now the, the suburbs are catching up with it. And I'm surrounded by the mysteries of existence. And I feel my life simultaneously as physical and metaphysical, as material and spiritual. And that those two realities are interpenetrated in the same way that my spirit and my body are two expressions of the same thing. So. I was never really an explicitly religious poet. Until recent years, I wrote a couple of poems, but I'm still not primarily a religious poet. But everything in my poetry is informed, I think, by a spiritual perspective on human existence. Well, you know, Seneca was, in addition to being a literary figure, was also a successful business person. And one of the questions you raised in one of your essays is, why is there no poetry about business? I mean, isn't like Elon Musk the Achilles of today? I mean, aren't the discoverers of vaccines and the creators of light bulbs. Like, 
why don't they deserve the kind of epic treatment that the heroes of yesteryear got? Why aren't their activities ennobled in some way through, why don't they have a, a cast of, of hired poets to sing their praises? I think if they hired them, they probably would get people singing their praises, you know, put them, you know, give them a good, good salary <laughs> with a stock plan. You'd probably have epics for every CEO, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, the conventional exp- explanation is that poets aren't in the business world, so they don't know it from the inside, but that's wrong. T.S. Eliot was in business, Wallace Stevens, A.R. Ammons, Archibald McLeish, Richard Eberhardt, Ted Couser, James Dickey. I mean, you can go on and on. But I wrote an essay. It was the first time anybody had noticed this because I was trying to figure it out for myself how central to the American poetic tradition are writers who spent their formative years, or in some cases their entire lives, in the business world. But those people wanted to hide that fact generally from the public because they felt it was unpoetic, that it, it said that you were mercenary or whatever. And I think that was true for a long time, that people felt that they would, in the same way that I didn't let people in business know I wrote poetry, these people didn't want, I, I was never ashamed of it. I, I was a poor kid, the oldest kid in a working class immigrant family. I had to make a living to help my, get my a sister 21 years younger than me, a brother 20 years younger than me. My parents had no money. I had to be responsible, as did indeed my brother Ted, who has now become more famous than me and He's probably much smarter than me, famous jazz music critic. We had to be practical. We had no choice. If we chose not to become a professor, we had to make a living. And I, I'm proud of living. I learned so much, and I did, I'm proud of my business career. I, I enjoyed my time at Stanford Business School. It's not anything that's embarrassing. The other thing is that the literary community hates business because everybody in the English department has a brother or a cousin that's a lawyer or a businessman. And their parents are always reminding, you know, Seymour makes three times as much money as you do. So they, they've all got a chip on their shoulder against business people. It's like everybody in New York has a cousin or a brother that went out to Los Angeles. So there's a rivalry between those things. So the, the literary world hates the business world. Writers who are business understand that, so they're not going to openly invite the hate. But that does mean that some of the most interesting subject matter in American culture, nobody in the business world writes about. Novelists write about it. Movie makers write about it. You even see popular song people write about it. There's another poem of mine that's really kind of weirdly famous. My poem, Money. Let me read this poem. It's a very short poem. Actually, I wrote it as part of a prose piece, and a friend of mine said, if you took that out, it could be a poem. I took it out, and I completely reworked it. It's a very short poem. This poem people put on posters, and it's all slang. And what it shows you is that the genius of American spoken English is full of metaphors and expressions about money, and that they constitute a kind of poem. I have as an epigraph a thing that Wallace Stevens wrote in his journal. Money is a kind of poetry. Money, the long green. Cash, stash, rhino, jack, or just plain dough. Chalk it up, fork it over, shell it out. Watch it burn holes through pockets. To be made of it, to have it to burn. Greenbacks, double eagles, megabucks, and Ginny Mays. It greases the palm, feathers the nest, holds heads above water makes both ends meet. Money breeds money, gathering interest, compounding daily, always in circulation. Money, you don't know where it's been, but you put it where your mouth is, and it talks. People love that poem because they've never heard a poem about money, and they've heard every one of those expressions. It greases the palm, feathers the nest, you know. And even the, the final joke, you, you know, your parent, you don't know where that's been, money, you don't know where it's been, but you put it where your mouth is, and it talks. I mean, I take these three metaphors and put them together, and you have a poetic frisson. But anyway, I think, that, I think part of the fun of that poem is that nobody has written about that obvious subject matter. Well, in rap, you see quite, there's quite a few uh, songs about money and about business. Make a dollar out of 15 cents, and... I could quote quite a few other lyrics that... Uh, How many movies have been made about money? <laughs> yeah, well. So, like, last question, and I want to touch just briefly on your role in government, right? So you were at the National Endowment for the Arts, and 
The arts, a lot, there's a big debate over the role of government in the arts. I wanted to focus just a bit more on arts education, right, and its role. It seems like arts get squeezed out of, certainly squeezed out of K through 12 education. And the notion of a liberal arts education, even at the university level, is sort of on the outs with the rise of STEM and so forth. How can we get people to appreciate the relevance of the arts? And I think you quote Wallace Stevens by saying the arts need no justification, but it seems like we need to somehow justify the arts and say, okay, you need to learn the arts because it'll help you make more money or it'll you know, be more productive. Or you know, How can we change the conversation to get people to appreciate the importance of arts for living? Let me start by an observation. Inside the arts world, so much of the training of the arts is to produce future arts professionals. And I've been on panels with somebody saying, well, you know, you've got to learn dance, kids should learn dance, because if you don't start young, you'll never become a professional. And I just go, no, no, no. That's not why kids learn dance. Kids learn dance to be comfortable with their own body, to learn to move their own bodies in a way that they can control and that they can express their feelings, their personality in. Very simple. If the purpose of education is to produce complete human beings with the skills necessary to lead a meaningful and productive life in a complicated and changing society, how can you even imagine that you're educating people unless you're educating their imagination, their creativity, and their emotions? Kids are killing each other every day because they haven't matured and educated their emotions. Just take poetry. Poetry gives kids, here's a death, you know, here's you got fourth graders, here's a death poem, here's a poem about war, you know, this, that, and the other. Traditionally, educators have understood that you give students works of art that are too old for them so that they can see these experiences that they have in the future and have had a chance to inhabit them emotionally and imaginatively before they're absolutely necessary. Because having your imagination and emotions capable of handling really difficult big situations could be, in many cases, the difference between life and death or a productive life and a dysfunctional life. And so each of the arts trains different things. And they usually train two things at once. Now, I did a lot of music early on. And I went to a really kind of a lousy high school it had really good Latin because it was a Catholic high school and they were hoping we'd become priests. But it had a great band. We were the best band in Los Angeles, which is a huge thing. I mean, that's the biggest, one of the biggest metro areas in, in the country. Now, that band, and I say this without apology, was full of future criminals of America because my high school was full of a lot of people that were future criminals of America. But what the band did was teach them how to play with each other. It gave them something like hitting a drum or playing a trumpet that they were good at, that they felt a kind of reward of these things. So we were doing the stated purpose, which was making music, but it had an invisible effect, which was in a sense, giving people a sense that if they practice something every day, they would get better and better, and that their excellence in this would give them self-respect and to perform well, they had to listen to what other people were doing and be a team. It's the same thing that a lot of kids learn in athletics, but not everyone's an athlete. And so that band was fantastic in taking people who could have had very negative forms of socialization and turning them into positive forms of socialization. You could have dealt drugs, you could have done all these things, joined a gang. The gangs were real in, in my neighborhood. And so I think all of the arts do this. And the different arts, each dance teaches you one thing, music teaches you another thing, writing teaches you something. I'll tell you, theater in high school is fantastic. It's the kids who are most alienated, who don't have a group that they hang out with. They just show up out of hunger, human hunger, to these tryouts. They get a role. And after about two weeks into rehearsal, they go, you know, these other kids are as weird as I am. And then about two weeks later, they say, you know, we're weird, but we're really good at something. And then about night before it opens, they go, these are my best friends in the whole world. I've got these people that I love that are just like me. 
And then on opening night, the most miraculous thing of all happens. All the weird kids get up on a stage and they do all their weird things and they are met with applause. They are brought back into the larger group. So you look at this thing as, is the purpose of drama club to put on good plays? No, the plays stink usually. But it gives a form of positive socialization to alienated marginal kids and then brings them back into a relationship of mutual respect with the larger community. Why is that not as important as trigonometry? Why is band not as important as these other things? And so you can't have an educational system which doesn't educate the emotions, imagination, creativity, and the physical bodies of the students. Otherwise, you're kidding yourself. And that's why we have in Los Angeles one of the most expensive educational systems in the world in which one-third of the students leave high school before graduation. Those students will not only make less, have less productive careers, but they will die seven years earlier than the graduates. That's a public health issue as well as an educational or cultural issue. If you had arts, if you had more ways of socializing the kids, I think you would retain greater numbers of them at a smaller cost to society. Well, Dana, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. The latest book, latest book of poetry is called Meet Me at the Lighthouse. So check that out. But there's also plenty of other wonderful books. I love the memoir, Studying with Miss Bishop. I highly recommend that. And of course, all of the other essays. Okay. Thanks so much. Hope to see you again soon, perhaps in person. Okay. Yep. I look forward to it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.